If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me today to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're starting a new series today, a series that, uh, that, that is focused on uh, the parables of Luke. Uh, and we'll begin in Luke chapter 10 and we'll go uh, not covering all of Luke's parables uh, in order, but we'll, we'll, we'll go in... Uh, uh, we'll be moving through from Luke uh, 10 all the way through Luke 16 over the next few weeks. Um, this morning, it's a parable that is familiar to us, but uh, it's a chance for us to hear how Jesus uh, teaches us the, uh, the good news, the gospel, by using the things that are all around us uh, and allowing those things to, to bring life to his, uh, to his teaching and to his message. So we're going to begin in uh, Luke chapter 10 uh, in verse 29 and then... Uh, the verses that follow. If you uh, can't follow along with, with the Bible in your hand, you can follow along with the words on the screen as we together hear the word of the Lord. But wanting to justify himself, he, that is a, a lawyer who Jesus is in a discussion with, uh, asked a question of Jesus. He said, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Then he turns to the lawyer and he says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is God's word offered to us in its reading and in its hearing. So we give thanks, Lord God Almighty. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord God, we do come before you with praise and thanksgiving for your holy word, for the wisdom that, that is contained therein. Lord, we ask that you would help us to, uh, to, to gather our hearts and minds around uh, your wisdom and help us to to know and understand you and your love more and more lord open our eyes that we would see our ears that we would hear open our minds that we come to know and understand your word and indeed your ultimate will open our hearts that we would feel its power then by your grace i ask oh god that you would open our hands that we would offer grace to the world in jesus name we pray amen I remember distinctly uh, the, the season of life that I was in whenever I was trying to, uh, to discern what seminary I was going to go to. Uh, I, I went straight from college, Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana, to Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, there was a process that I went through in trying to decide what seminary I'd go to. I, I, I went to all of the uh, United Methodist affiliated seminaries in the, in the South. Uh, my wife, Lauren, is from Dallas, and uh, 
And whenever we talked about United Methodist Seminaries in the north, she said, I just don't know if I could do it. I said, well, what about Duke? It's in North Carolina. She said, but it has the word north in it. Um, and so, so we, we did look at, at Perkins uh, at SMU in Dallas. We looked at, uh, at St. Paul's uh, in, in Kansas. Uh, we looked at Duke in North Carolina and then at Candler in Atlanta at Emory. And, and uh, one of the critical deciding factors for me in that whole process was who was going to be my preaching professor. I thought that preaching was something I really wanted to, to figure out. It was highly important to me, and so I wanted to be sure I had the right preaching professor. And so I did some research on all the different schools, and, and one of my favorite uh, preachers of all time was, uh, was a, a professor at Candler named Fred Craddock. Now, Fred Craddock uh, is is known more than uh, anything else as a storyteller. And you actually can just buy uh, uh, CDs or you could buy books that are nothing but Fred Craddock stories. And, and, and I'm not talking about sermons, I'm just talking about stories. And so he would tell a story uh, in sermon and, and have so little need to explain said story because it was so profoundly and richly impactful that everybody was able to like, like let sink in what the Holy Spirit needed to sink in that day for them. And so I said, I'm going to, to Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, because I want to learn from Fred Craddock. Well, he retired the semester before I began at Emory University. However, uh, his, his, the foundation of his teaching and, and, and his understanding of storytelling still uh, seeped into all of the homiletics uh, of, of Emory. And uh, I remember uh, one of the openings of a, of a seminary preaching class, and, and they, it was like we were being quizzed in like junior high English, and it's like, what is a simile? And it was, you know, like or as. And what is a metaphor? It's the same as a simile without like or as. Uh, and, and then it's like, well, well, what is a parable? And it was to draw forth the story of life that applies wisdom for all. Uh, specifically for those in that day, in that time, but provides corporate wisdom that can be related to throughout the generations. And so whenever we think about uh, parables, I want you to think about the way in which Jesus looked out into the world and, and, and looked at, at everything around him. And, and whenever, the, whenever he was ready to teach his disciples and all those that would hear him something new, uh, he, he would look out in the world and say, okay, you know that. I know you know that. And since you know that, I'm going to teach you about this that you don't yet understand by talking to you about that. And so when we get to this story, this story of what we now call the Good Samaritan, the word good isn't anywhere in this text, it's just a Samaritan, uh, but what we call the Good Samaritan, uh, we, 
would do ourselves a huge favor if we would put ourselves into the place of the story. If we would put ourselves into the shoes of the lawyer that's having a discussion with Jesus or into the shoes of the disciples that are hearing this teaching as Jesus has a conversation with this lawyer. See, this lawyer has come with a question. He wants to know, what is the, what is the, the commandment of God? How do I inherit the kingdom of God? I want to get to heaven, the lawyer says. I want to go to heaven. Tell me how to get there. He says, love God, love neighbor. And, and because the lawyer feels like he, 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 he missed kind of a grade school level basic understanding of what it means to, to love God, uh, he feels like he needs to justify himself. That's what the text says. In, in order to justify his earlier question, he now asks, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus has this wisdom over here, this new teaching that he wants to offer to his disciples. So he looks out at the world around him and says, what is it that I could speak to that would help them understand this? Who is my neighbor? So he says there's a man that's moving, that's going, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The word actually is uh, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So we need to know a little bit about what is this road from Jerusalem to Jericho culturally. What, uh, what would the lawyer, what would the disciples know about this journey that we don't know that will help us kind of put ourselves in and understand this worldview that Jesus is teaching about? The first thing that you need to know is uh, in those days, a day travel was between 20 and 22 miles. That seems stupid uh, because that's a long, long, long way. I, I, I don't often walk 20 miles a day. Do you? Well, uh, they did. A day's travel was 20 to 22 miles. Well, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 18 miles, and it was known as a day's journey. And so people traveled this often. Jericho was, uh, was an interesting space because in Jerusalem, they had about 20 inches of rain a year, and in Jericho, they had eight inches of rain a year. And, and, uh, but, but in the actual city of Jericho, there was a spring that made it like an oasis in the midst of a desert. And so when you travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're traveling not just 18 miles, not just a day's journey, but you're traveling through vastly different uh, uh, geographical circumstances, like the, the whole topography changes. It, it's literally down. It's 3,325 feet elevation change. You're 2,500 feet above sea level in Jerusalem. You're 825 below in Jericho. So 3,325 difference, and you have all of the rainfall difference. And so you're moving from a lush uh, Mesopotamian uh, feel of Jerusalem to the desertous region around Jericho uh, in order to get to that spring. And as you're traveling, uh, you're going literally down. So when people say, I'm going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's why, because you're literally going down. And as, and, and as you move from 20 inches of rain to, to uh, to 16 inches of rain, to 12 inches of rain, to 8 inches of rain, uh, you could think about what the look of the land would be like. You move from uh, lush to palms to desert flowers to barely anything. So as you get towards this barely anything area, you come to a very specific part of this road that was very well known. It's the boundary between Judah and Benjamin. 
So if you remember uh, back, you Bible scholars, OU, uh, after Joshua and the people of God entered into the land and they conquered all that the Lord had promised them, they then divvied up the land amongst the 12 tribes and it said, you get this and you get this and you get this and you get this. All 12 tribes had land. And the land couldn't just be any land. It had to be well prescribed because they didn't want, uh, they didn't want Peyton and Doug arguing over what the border was. They wanted everybody to know this is the border, right? And so uh, if you look back in, in, in the scripture, uh, you get some very clear lines and delineations of, of what it is that is between them. And so uh, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho had what was known as the ascent of Adumim. And it's in Joshua 15 and then also in Joshua 18. And so I, I want you to see uh, how the scriptures identify this particular uh, spot, this particular location. So in Joshua 15, verse 7, this is when it's lining out what is Judah. What is Judah? And so it says this. It says, And the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Accor, and so northward, turning from, toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley, the boundary that passes along the waters of En Shemesh and ends in En Rogel. So that's super boring. But it talks about a very specific ascent, this location in the desertous region between Jerusalem and Jericho called the Ascent of Adumim. It's also re referenced in uh, chapter 18, Joshua 18, uh, verse 17. Uh, you find it again there, and now we're aligning uh, Benjamin. And so this is that, that boundary. This side is Joshua, this side is Benjamin. And so here it says, Then it bends in a northerly direction, going on to Enshemesh, and from there it goes to Giloth, uh, uh, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim. Then it goes down to the stone of Bahan, Reuben's son. You see, uh, when, when we hear that in uh, English, uh, we miss something. The original Hebrew for the ascent of Adumim, uh, when it goes into Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, uh, it would be known as the ascent of the red or the ascent of of blood, the ascent of the red, the ascent of blood. Uh, both Eusebius and uh, Jerome, third and fourth century church fathers, talk about this particular location on the travel between Jerusalem and Jericho, and they talk about it as the bloody path. Not, not the whole path, this particular spot, because this particular spot, it narrows the gap so that the path is so is uh, so, so narrow that anyone that travels it is vulnerable there, especially if they've gone from Jerusalem down to Jericho because now they're at the end of their trek. They're weary from the day's hike. Water has been scarce along the route because they're now in a desert, and so they're vulnerable. This is the bloody path, the ascent of Adumim, right here moving towards, Jerusalem, towards Jericho. So for us, you know, uh, we hear that there's this dude, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and we're like, okay, that's cool. Like, I've heard of those two cities. There's a battle of Jericho, walls fell down. Like, Jerusalem, that's where David built the temple. Like, we still talk about Jerusalem today. 
cool. But the lawyer and the disciples, when Jesus said, there was a man, he went from Jerusalem down to Jericho, they would have said, hmm, he went by himself? He went down that road? I mean, people travel that road, but you know what can happen on that road. I was, uh, I was visiting someone in the hospital down in the med center. And um, now, a lot of times when I visit someone in the hospital down in the med center, I visit like in the early afternoon. I don't know why it always ends up like this. And then I'm leaving right as rush hour is beginning. And, uh, and everybody's like, oh, you really need to go because like the travel from the med center to the woodlands, like it's gonna take you three hours to get home. And I'm like, absolutely not. It can't take me three hours to get home. I need to get home by a certain time in order to like get to baseball games, not baseball. Why did I say baseball? We don't have any baseball kids. Uh, to get to basketball games or football games or whatever I have to do for the family that night. And so whenever, uh, whenever I'm leaving, uh, I always comfort the people that are like oh, feeling so guilty that Jason's up here and he's going to like battle rush hour traffic to get home. I'm like, oh, don't feel guilty. I know how to get home. See, what I do is I go through um, the ghetto to avoid all the traffic. And, and, and they're like, oh, don't go that way. That's like really dangerous. Like, like something could happen to you there. And I'm like, no, it's okay. Uh, I, I, it's fine. And so they're like, but you wouldn't do that at night. I'm like, well, I would, but that's okay. Because I always like break out of the traffic on 288 and then I go through the neighborhood south of, uh, south of 59 and 288 and then I all of a sudden like pop out at Star of Hope and I get on uh, 59 past all the traffic, uh, 610 Hardy home. 50 minutes from the med center. David Butcher works in the med center. He's nodding his head because he's done the same thing. I promote this if you need to do it, but evidently not if you're scared of really, really rough neighborhoods. Uh, and, and, and so you could think uh, in this very context, today, are there areas that you wouldn't travel in? Are there areas that I could say, if you're gonna go from here to there, it's unsafe. Be careful, be on the lookout, be alert, have your doors locked, just whatever, right? Uh, if you get a flat tire, call for help. I don't know whatever your mama told you about those things, right? So, uh, so that would be this thing that, that Jesus is speaking to. There's danger here. It's known. But it, it, it then goes from there and talks about the man. He's beaten. He's stripped. So now he's naked. And he is half dead. Almost dead. So someone that like goes by him and looks at him would think that he's dead. And then it, it introduces three characters and, and something I want you to know about these three characters so that you could like maybe have a little bit of grace for them but understand where they're coming from. Uh, so these three characters, there's, there's a priest, there's a Levite, and then there's the Samaritan. Uh, something I want you to know about the priest uh, first. The priest first, uh, in Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, uh, it says this about what uh, the responsibility of the priest is and, and some of the rules and regulations. Now, to be a priest, there's like all these things that you got to be sure you get right in order to be like a priest and also be uh, like honoring God in the way you're being a priest. And it says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priest, the son of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall defile himself for a dead person among his relatives, except for his nearest kin, 
his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, likewise for a virgin sister close to him because she has had no husband, he may defile himself for her, but he shall not defile himself as a husband among the people uh, and so profane himself. So here's the deal. A priest can't go near a dead person, can't touch a dead person, can't be in the same room as a dead person, except like a really close relative, but not even his wife. All right, not even his wife. So stranger dead person, like super duper no-no. Uh, like son dead person, okay, but you gotta like clean up in a certain way afterwards. Wife dead person, no. Right? So like the code is pretty strict. It's very clear. And so this is, uh, this is who Jesus introduces to the story. Jesus says, so there's this guy, he goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he gets beaten, he gets stripped, he's half dead. So he's laying on the side of the road, assumed dead, probably dead, gonna die, if not already dead. And then there's a priest who has this ritual code. You gotta do this, this, and this, and you can't do that, that, and that, and you can't do this. All right, and then there's, then there's just the, the generic code that would apply to the Levite. The Levite. So priests come from the house and line of the Levites, and Levites also have a role in the temple, but they don't have the, 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 the leadership administration that goes forth in how to hand, handle the sacrifices. And so uh, in, uh, in Numbers chapter 19, we hear about, uh, about other codes that would apply to, uh, to, to all of the... Uh, Uh, to all of the Levites, and it's Numbers chapter 19, verse 10. And here's what it says for them. It says, the one, uh, beginning in verse B, this shall be a perpetual statute for the Israelites and for the alien residing among them. Those who touch the dead body of any human being uh, shall be unclean for seven days. They shall purify themselves with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third day and on the seventh day, they will not become clean. All who touch a corpse, the body of a human being who has died and do not purify themselves, defile the tabernacle of the Lord. Such persons shall be cut off from Israel. Since water for cleansing was not dashed on them, they will remain unclean. Their uncleanliness is still on them. So, you have a code for everybody, including the Levites, whose job it is to, to attend to the priest and the temple worship in Jerusalem. And, and, and so for the Levites, you don't touch dead people. You don't go near them. You don't make yourself unclean. And if you happen to touch a dead person, here's how you clean yourself. You got to do it exactly as prescribed. And if you fail in any minutia of this code or law, what happens? You're cut off. You're out. Get out. That's it. And so Jesus introduces these characters. He says there's a man, random guy, going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, really dangerous path, bloody path, dangerous path, path well known. And here, there are people that pass by. There's a priest, not supposed to come near dead people, unless they're a particular family member. Levite, amongst the people of God, not not supposed to do it, and if you do it, it's very inconvenient. And then the last person that comes by is a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans uh, and Jews don't get along. Uh, sometimes we don't, we don't think about why they don't get along, but, but just to give a little word, in, in 129 B.C., the Jews 
went into Jerusalem and destroyed their temple. Like Mount Gerizim, their high and holy place, this is like Jerusalem for the Samaritans, the Jews went to Mount Gerizim and tore down their temple. That's like 160-ish years from the time Jesus is speaking back to when the Samaritans had their temple destroyed, okay? Just to put it in our own framework, right, Jesus is talking to people, and when he says Samaritan, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Kind of the same way that I say uh, that uh, in 1863, Gettysburg took place, and the Civil War was going on between the North and the South, right? And so you know that. That's a part of our, our framework, 150-ish, 160-ish years between uh, occasions. And so when you put all that together, we, we, we have a framework. It's like, okay, well, if they, if they heard Samaritan, they would know that. If we, heard, uh, if we heard Gettysburg, if we heard Civil War, we would know that. And so the lawyer and the disciples hear this story, and they hear about a Samaritan who's willing to care for the one who is beaten, who is stripped, and who's half dead. A couple things I want you to note about how he cared for them. He didn't delegate responsibility initially. He didn't find a way out. He didn't find an excuse. I want you to go back and note how he says, how, how the scripture says, he bandaged him. He poured wine and oil on him. He lifted his body up and laid it on his own animal. He takes him to an inn, presumably in Jericho, pays for the room. That night, he himself, the scripture says, cares for him. He doesn't yet call a doctor. He doesn't yet, he does it himself. And then after all that has been accomplished, the next day he pays for his extended care and says, charge it all to my tab. I think a lot of times when we think about the Good Samaritan, we think that, that he took him and took him to the inn and the innkeeper cared for him. We miss all the things that he did, that he bandaged, that he carried him, that he lifted him, that he cared for him. He did all of this because he was moved to love. I think Jesus is, this is all in order for Jesus to teach the people who a neighbor is. And Jesus takes the most extreme circumstance he could come up with that everyone could relate to as a real life circumstance. One that is incredibly painful, one that, 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 that can evoke emotion. And he uses that and, and he doesn't use it so that they would say, hey, this is so extreme. Uh, whenever you come to other circumstances, if it's not that extreme, you're dismissed from it. No, he, he, he says it so that it could apply to anything that serious and less so that they could see that a neighbor is one who cares for the need of others when able to dismiss one's own self so the priest and the levite they have good reason not to and yet jesus is implying for them they should have 
anyway. You and I, we have good reason to not care for people. We're busy. Uh, we don't have the time. We don't have the money. We don't have the energy. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have, we don't have, we don't have, we don't have. And yet, Jesus is saying, look, that's not being a neighbor. If you want to be a neighbor, you remember, inherit the kingdom of God, love God, love neighbor. Like, if you want to go to heaven, be sure you care for others. That's what being a neighbor means. He doesn't use this extreme circumstance to depress us and tell us we can't. He uses it to tell us we can in any way, in all things. I remember a few years ago, I was in a funk. I was in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a funky, funky place. And I woke up in the morning and I was sad and I lay my head down on the pillow at night and I was sad and there was something weird going on in my soul. And, and if I looked at what was going on in my life, I, I can't really point to exactly what it was, but I know that I was in a dark space. And I was going through the motions in a lot of what I was doing. I, went, I began seeing a counselor. I began talking to people uh, with wisdom in my life. I was confessing all of this to my covenant group. And I was doing all of this work. But in the end, I knew that something was still off in me. And I was going through just my normal business and I had a meeting with one of you. I had a meeting with one of you that was supposed to go like this, 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 and this. And we were going to accomplish that, 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 and that. And then at the end of that meeting, we were going to go on our way. And I was going to come into that meeting sad and depressed and leave sad and depressed. And I was going to go about my business. And one of you sat down across a table from me and looked me in the eye and said, Jason... How is it with you? And it was so tender and so profound. The spiritual wisdom that you took when you looked at me that I actually opened up to you. And I share with you what was going on and how I didn't understand it and I didn't know when it started and I don't know if I'm going to know when it's ending. But I just poured out my soul to you. And you were my neighbor. And I'll never forget it. You didn't have to do that. We could have just had a meeting. You didn't have to do that. We could have just done our business. You didn't have to do it. You could have ignored the look on my face or the energy in my spirit. But instead, you looked on me and said, how is it with you? You were my neighbor. It doesn't always have to be in these grand extreme ways, but Jesus used that as a means, as a vehicle through which he could tell all of us that we are called to love our neighbors and that we can do it just as the Samaritan did.